0: Hello everyone, and a belated happy Deepavali to our Hindu friends. This live stream is brought to you by New Narrative, a movement for democracy in Southeast Asia. And if you'd like to support our efforts to create a better Southeast Asia, please join us as a member at newnarrative.com slash join, or donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. Before we start... Um, We want to say that while we encourage discussion in the Facebook and YouTube chat, I want to remind everyone that today we're going to be talking about a very sensitive and controversial topic, and a man's life is literally at stake here, so emotions are running very high. Please be respectful and kind in the comments. We are all living in very difficult times, especially all of us in Singapore are struggling very much with the pandemic. We will be exercising a stricter than usual policy of moderation in the comments, and we will not hesitate to delete any comments which may be construed as offensive or hate speech. So on to the topic. Nagendran Damalingup is scheduled to be executed by the Singapore government on Wednesday, the 10th of November. There was a last minute appeal today that was dismissed, but there will be another appeal uh, heard by the Court of Appeal tomorrow at 2.30pm. But if it is unsuccessful, he could still be hanged on Wednesday. Mr Nagendran was arrested in Singapore in 2009 and charged with trafficking 42.72 grams of diamorphine, which is a form of heroin used to treat, treat severe pain. Mr Nagendran testified in court that he had been coerced into trafficking the drugs by a man who threatened to murder his girlfriend, but he was not believed by the court and was sentenced to death by hanging. This was in November 2010, so he has now spent a whole decade on death row. In addition, experts have also assessed Mr Nagendran as having an intellectual disability, the UN Convention of the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which Singapore has ratified, bans the imposition of the death penalty on people whose mental and intellectual disabilities may have impeded their effective defense. And Singapore's own laws were amended in 2012 to enable ratification of the CRPD. But while the court did recognize his disability, they also found that he had sufficient mental responsibility for the crime. We will talk about that later. Before we meet our guests for tonight, New Narrative wants to say that we believe that the death penalty has no place in any civilized society. It belongs to the trash heap of history alongside punishments like prison labor and cutting the hand of a thief. Unfortunately, all three still exist today. New Narrative is hosting this live stream event to inform our viewers about the injustice of Mr. Nagendran's death sentence and to encourage Singaporeans and people all over the world to urge their leaders to spare his life. But we also want to make clear that we are against the death penalty and against punitive approaches to drug policy or the so-called war on drugs throughout Southeast Asia that has led overwhelmingly to the murder of poor and vulnerable people. In fact, Mr. Nagendran has spent over a decade in solitary confinement, which is recognized by the Geneva Convention as cruel and inhuman punishment. And so we believe that his punishment already exceeds his crime and he should be released to his family. So joining us today to discuss Mr. Nagendran's case are Emmy Carissa, a disability rights activist. Hello, Emmy. Hello. Kokila Anamalai, who is a activist with the Transformative Justice Collective. Hello, Kokila. Hi. And Mila Rocky, sister of death row prisoner Sai Suhail, who is also an anti-death penalty activist herself with the Transformative Justice Collective. Hello, Mila. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Okay, so let's start with how Mr. Nagendran's doing. Kokila, I understand that you have spoken with Mr. Nagendran's family. How is he doing? And does he understand what is happening?
1: Well, his family says that Um, He doesn't understand what is happening, though the um, AGC and prison maintain otherwise. Um, So his family have been visiting him uh, every day for the last week. And um, they say that mostly he talks about his childhood and things that happened to him before the age of 18. Um, And he does not seem to have much cognizance of what's going on around him now, that he's disoriented, um, that he falls into long periods of silence while they're visiting, um, and that his mood changes erratically, um, and that they're very, very concerned for how the last 12 plus years in um, a single cell, uh, locked up for 23 hours a day, has affected uh, his mental state.
0: And I understand that his family is now here in Singapore, some of them have come all the way here in spite of all the issues with COVID they've come all the way here to see him
1: yes four of them are here
0: and have they been able to meet with him and talk to him
1: yes all four of them have been meeting and talking to him his younger brother Navin arrived um, the day before Deepavli or two days before Deepavli and um, his cousin brother, cousin sister and uh, Nagin's mother arrived a few days later
0: Right, thank you. Um, so, Mila, let's let's turn to you. Your brother is on death row. Can I ask you, what is it like to live with with this knowledge? He's been in since 2011 and um,
2: we've just been waiting and waiting for updates. And it's just a waiting game, actually, because we don't really know Um, when the date's going to be and you know with all the cases that's going on um, whether it will actually still process, uh, proceed or you know whether it will actually be salvaged you know and it's hard because you see him change over the years like he's totally a different person from the time he was inside from the time he was outside to when he first got all the way until now, he's changed a lot, and you can see that there are certain times where his mood is just, just really, really bad.
0: You know, yeah. So, is this um, you? You is it your impression that it's the the solitary confinement, um, or is it the the sentence that's? Um, you know, he's waiting for the sentence or, or a combination of both. What, what, why, why the change?
2: I think it's a combination of both. Because when he just got caught, I think it was the realization that, oh, okay, so this is definitely going to be a death sentence for me. And um, like, what, what am I going to do now? Because when he initially got caught, he was a mess. And then when he started going to court and you know, was fighting his case, he looked, he looked different, a bit more optimistic because I think he saw that the case was progressing. Then once he was finally sentenced, then that's where things started to change. And then not only is um, he seen it alone in a cell, but then due to his stress, you know, he, started, um, he couldn't handle it. So I guess he did some stuff and then they locked him in a different cell, which is the one where there's no opening, he can't talk to anybody, he can't say anybody. So that added on to the stress that he had. So it was a, a, quite a, um, a bit of fluctuation in his mood. So one day he can, one day I would say him, he can be his normal self, and then the next day I would him, he's absolutely blank.
0: Right. Uh, before we, we follow up on that, I want to ask how you are doing and your family I mean, this surely cannot have been an easy time for all of you.
2: Me being the closest to him, it really does affect me because like, he's not around. He wasn't around when I got married. He wasn't around when I gave birth. You know? He's not there for my son who is still a toddler. So I do bring my son to visit him once in a while, but you can see... Um, how much he wants to touch my son, hug him. So it's very painful for me to see as well. And, you know, like I mentioned, his mood swings are there. So there are times when we are on good terms, there are times when he can get angry with me and then we have to deal with it. Like I have to deal with him getting mad at me and I have to understand his situation and like calm myself down as well, not to react to it. So it's very difficult actually.
0: If I may clarify, and we have some questions in the comments, he's not allowed to physically touch any of you? So no, there so is...
2: There's no, there's no touching, there's no... In fact, because I was um, actually given the letter for association last year in February, and even during that final week, when we requested for a special visit where you can sit with him and touch him, that was also rejected. So there's no physical human contact at
0: all. What uh, What's the logic of that? What I don't under I don't understand that. Why can't yeah. you touch him?
2: Yeah, we don't understand it either. Like they, they don't even allow. It. When I had my son as a baby, we were asking if he can just hold him, and he's just a baby. Yeah. They don't allow it either. Even for the other inmates, because I was asking. Um, are they
0: allowed to hold like their grandkids you know and the children especially not just us you know it's the children but they don't allow it at all right thank you uh, so Kokila, how is mr Nagendran's family holding up you've you've talked to them um now you've mentioned you know mr Nagendron is, is under he, he's he's um clearly not well um how is his family doing
1: well, I think, you know, these, there's only one, I, I I don't know how to answer these questions, honestly. I mean, of course, they're extremely distressed. Um, his, his mother uh, can't stop crying. Um, it's surreal. I mean, I don't think that we're built as people to be able to make sense of or understand or hold these emotions. Uh, it's, it's unfathomable any kind of loss of a of a loved one is is extremely um un, uh, undoing as it is but to have somebody on death row to know that they're going to be executed by the state which has been premeditating it for 12 years that there's how do you say what it does to a family how do you say what they're going through how do you how do you describe what the state of mind is like yeah, I
0: don't know. Yes, I, I think it's a common narrative about um, that that we hear about drugs destroying families, but we rarely hear about how this state of affairs and the execution of a person also destroys the the families over the course of you know the many many years that that the person might be on death row and afterwards.
1: In fact, the only time that families. Um, can sort of touch the person on death row is um, when they are brought to court there's a there's a slight there's a small gap in the glass pane that the uh, prisoner sits behind and so sometimes families like family members put their fingers through and they can touch fingertips and that's that's the only time since from the point of arrest um, and, and usually the point of arrest is is a point at which n- nobody knows it's going to happen right so there is no Last hug. There is nothing because the next time they touch their bodies, it's usually after they've been executed. Wow.
0: Gosh, <sighs> I, I'm 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 I have to confess, I'm 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 quite stunned by that. It, not even a last goodbye. The sheer inhumanity of that. I mean, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm at a loss of words here. Um. Wow. So let let's talk about um, Mr. Nagendran's mental state. And here we we come to Emmy, you know, your disability rights expert, in particular on intellectual and psychosocial disability. Um, so I, um, where should we start? I I understand Mr. Nagendran did not have a fair trial to begin with because it did not accommodate his disability. Could could you explain to us? Let's start from the beginning. And help us understand how we should be accommodating a person with a psychosocial and intellectual disability to ensure a fair trial.
3: Okay. Um, I okay. So, I also have something to say about the mental state part. Um, but I will start with um, um, with procedural accommodations for persons with disabilities, especially people with psychosocial and intellectual disabilities. Um, So it's actually something that has gained prominence prominence only recently. And I think that's especially a reason why, um, you know, people should be educated about this and Naganjan's execution must be stopped. Because, um, for instance, even Singapore has acknowledged that there must be procedural accommodations for persons with disabilities. It introduced the appropriate adult scheme in 2015. Nagendran was um, arrested in 2009. And yet the confession that they take as most authoritative is the one that was procured in two thousand and nine, and we, I mean, they introduced the appropriate adult scheme. They said that um, people with intellectual disabilities might, you know, um, might be more likely to confess because they're scared. You know, they may confess to things they they didn't actually do, um, and also then there's the issue, uh, uh, and then like um, other things. Not it's just not only the police; it's also the courts. What what sort of procedural accommodations can the courts? should the courts provide under the latest international standards so for example um, there might be uh, people who must be trained to question differently you know we people need to work with the disabled person to find out what sorts of accommodations that they need um you know this can be done through a justice facilitator or you know like the person can also request i mean um I think, I mean, that that's my opinion as well. But also the latest international standards do say that procedural accommodations must be made and this can be done through a justice facilitator. So um, for things like, um, you know, the judge stepping down from the stand and or like taking off cloaks and wigs, these are things that might make things less scary for a person with a psychosocial or intellectual disability. I also want to address this issue of whether or not Nagandiran has an intellectual disability because I keep seeing it everywhere and people keep on saying, like, um, we need to do another psychiatric evaluation. But the thing is that whether or not someone, how someone is functioning, the CRPD committee and the international guidelines, principles and guidelines, have already said that we must move away from... Taking what experts, you know, the having medical ex um, medical professionals be the experts, and for um, and instead look at a social model of disability, and we released a statement from um by people with disabilities, and it has been signed by um, thirty one international um organizations that work at the grassroots, regional, national, I mean, and regional as in like uh you know. A region not not like regional in the country um and also international levels as well as 80 individual signatories um so we claim Nagendran as one of our own we recognize him as a person of intellectual and psychosocial disabilities and so I mean we, we just look it's not about the diagnosis it's about it's about the individual and what that person needs it's not simple black and white whether or not he has moral responsibility or not you know whether he should get the death penalty or not it's really about the procedural accommodations that he should have received received um, that should have been offered to him and that he could not get because then he cannot defend himself on an equal basis with others.
0: Thanks, I mean, I mean it, it, it doesn't, it, it does astonish me how people have been quibbling over exactly how much of a disability he has, right? Because it's like saying, hey, we shouldn't uh, execute people if they are wet. And then you start arguing. Well, how wet is someone, How much water needs to be on someone before they're wet? But the fact is, we shouldn't be executing people full stop, right? And if we're going to say, you know, the whole po- the whole point of the CPDR um, was is to say we should treat disabled people fairly, and we have to accommodate them. Um, and then now we're quibbling over exactly how much of a disability gives you know enables them to have that dignity and it, 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 it to me it's 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 totally back to front um and it makes no sense that we 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 should just try to treat people with dignity and fairness and respect rather than quibbling over well how much fairness and respect do you qualify for you know so i i yes i totally understand what you what you're saying here
3: um, I also wanted to add that um, the CRPD asked for rather than a medical approach for a social model approach. So we know that Nagendran had barriers put in front of him unintentionally because at that time people didn't know that about these standards. But that right now we can do something about it. The other thing is that um, evaluations from mental health professionals can be very subjective. So I've been given, given like different you know, diagnosis myself. Someone might say, and a lot of people when psychiatrists, when they meet me, they think that I was, use myself as an example, that I function really well because I'm articulate, but they don't know that I have like set shifting difficulties. It's not obvious. I once saw a, a psychologist and she was insisting that I was doing well um, for about three months until she finally realized that I wasn't lying and I was actually struggling. Um, yeah, so it is very subjective.
0: I think, I mean, if I make we make a crude analogy, it's like expecting everyone who gets COVID to have the exact same symptoms and be evaluated by a doctor in the exact same way with the exact same diagnosis. But we have this whole class of, um, you know, ailments that fall under COVID, but people, you know, um, have so many different symptoms, right? You have this whole laundry list of symptoms when you're asked to check in at somewhere and have you had shortness of breath or whatever. And, you know, cause, so I I, I don't want to say that, um, you know, a, a mental disability or mental illness is the same as a as a physical one. Of course, I want to be very careful there. But um, the point is that uh, a lot of what we assume about the, the objectivity of science is actually very subjective, and especially when it comes to the human mind or the human body. Um, now, mean you, you you wanted to talk about uh, Mister Nagendran's uh, mental state, and um, you had some responses to how cookie was cookie was describing him, and how um, he's doing.
3: Yes, yeah, so I mean, I as someone who has experienced altered states myself, um, when I was experiencing very bad conditions in a institutional setting. Um, what Naganjan is going through really struck me. I remember at the time when um, I was in that setting, I, was, I just couldn't comprehend how people could be so cruel because I guess some part of me wants to believe that the world is good. And so my mind, you know, dissociation can be a coping strategy. Um, it's not always bad. It, it's like a way the mind copes. So the way I coped was that I started to believe my mind created this narrative that everyone was out to help me, even though that was not the case. And I just couldn't understand it when people were hurting me. Like, like I, people would say, actually, you can't go to the bathroom. And I'll be like, why? Aren't you trying to help me? Isn't the whole place trying to help me? And then it can also be scary because I've experienced both. And then things become a lot more scary. So it's, but people can still know that they're scared of something they know they can't say what they're scared of or they can express it in some way
0: okay, so can we talk a bit about this this um i i mean the the ministry of home affairs put out a statement um saying that he had um so i'm paraphrasing sufficient uh, mental responsibility now can can you explain you know what that is and um maybe for people who don't understand um the the issues all the complicated issues around this so you know around this like what what does that what are they implying with that what does that mean and is that an actually an accurate way to talk about mr nagendron's mental health
1: just add here that that people also talk about uh, sorry can you hear me So so I just wanted to add here that, you know, people talk about um, psychosocial disabilities and intellectual disabilities versus, like, um, people who are neurotypical or who are non-disabled as if these are static and separate categories, right? Um, But carceral conditions produce a lot of distress. And I think it's it's very clear from Nagin's case, uh, from his family's uh, testimonies, that he's a very different person from when they last saw him and uh, he's his suffering seems to have increased incredibly from their experience of interacting with him for, for about five hours every day and um, this is also true for many people who've been incarcerated right that that it, it has tremendous it causes tremendous trauma this is well documented uh well researched so so yes his, his you know his state uh, at the point at which uh you know, the act happened at the point at which he was arrested, definitely something to discuss. But it's also about what it means to execute somebody. And this is what his mother keeps saying. It's like he's already suffered for 13 years. And for 13 years, the family sees it as him having been tortured. And that I don't know how to see it any other way, too, because I think somebody having to live in a single cell for 23 hours a day for 12 years is torture. And then to execute him. And you know, when I, when I interview people who've been incarcerated, many of them talk about how they see other prisoners um, you know, in their day room time and all that, who, who clearly seem to be in altered states of consciousness, right? who are talking to themselves or who are making sounds that are non-normative and who are acting in ways that, that clearly communicate extreme internal distress that has no outlet, that has no care, and support and services provided for it. So I think we, this is an important element in the discussion, I think, too, is, is how prison itself is a form of torture and produces extreme mental distress and can be disabling and can produce those psychosocial and other forms of disabilities that people experience. And I think the question of, you know, and also people talk about, a lot of these things like you've pointed out in binaries right like exactly what degree of responsibility exactly what degree of disability does somebody have and and also i mean i want to point out how all these things are interconnected in that um it's it, we know that nagin was in a lot of debt uh that he was 21 years old so barely an adult and in many jurisdictions still a child um that he had lived a life of deprivation and struggle he's been working part-time manual labor since he was in secondary school to support his family. So what do all, and and there's also been testimonies of course that he was coerced, that he was assaulted um, and that his girlfriend's life was threatened though the court has um, refused to accept these testimonies from him. So what do all of those things say about mental responsibility too? Like what what do they say about, I mean, can, can someone who is experiencing so much desperation make judgments and decisions in the way that someone who was not experiencing deprivation make them and is that a form of disability right so i think we use these terms in very kind of sometimes rigid ways but but more expansively if if it's understood as people in extremely different circumstances both external and internal cannot be all held to the same sensibilities and standards of action i think that to me is an important um Lens through which to understand uh, Nagin's experiences too. Uh,
0: thanks, Kokila. It it just seems to me if 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 you wanted to say have Mr. Nagendrin sign a contract, um, it might not be enforceable because of his, you know, intellectual disability. It, and and you said that his testimony was not accepted in court and i have to wonder if that was also because um he you know certain things he said was not were not seen as as plausible but if you assume that they're not plausible for example because um or his disability contributed to that but then you then dismiss that when it comes to the crime itself isn't that a double standard
1: that's not why uh, his testimony wasn't accepted right, okay. it was because they said he was inconsistent and he had given different accounts and at some points he right. had said that he had done it for money and i think this is, again creates a certain uh, uh, like enforces a certain moral standard on some. if somebody who is desperate does something for money why are they less deserving of understanding than somebody who didn't do it for money, but because they were sold. I mean, there are of course these are different circumstances, but but they were they all point to different kinds of desperation, right? Mm. And also, uh, when he made his earlier statements, he he did not have legal representation, right? So these were right. some sort of the statements right. he made right after he was arrested, uh, and and that's usually the point at which anybody is is terrified. Um, Uh, let alone somebody with the the kind of mental state that Nagin must have been in, uh, given his family's testimonies about how he experiences the world. Um, It it was statements given at that early point without access to legal counsel, and that he then also, um, they say he lied because at different points he said different things about his education levels or just generally about himself and and why he did what he did. But all of this is consistent with somebody um, and with many people who experience the world in inconsistent ways so if your experience of reality and experience of the world is inconsistent then your testimony will also be inconsistent we know that this is true for example for survivors of sexual assault and what trauma does to 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 the way your consciousness is affected
0: it, it seems to me if 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 he can't even remember factual things like his level of education you know how do you paint him as a why would someone lie about something factual right it's if if they can't even, um, if they don't even know something factual like their own level of education, it suggests that all his testimony really should be, is flawed and thrown out, should be thrown out. I mean, I, okay, well, I, I'm just going to say that, you know, I, 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 when I was questioned by the police, it was like three and a half hours, and I for all the advantages and privileges I have, education, you know, uh, upbringing, everything, it was still a very scary experience knowing that you're talking to someone who could destroy your life just by what they type on, you know, and what they decide and what they tell their superior. And knowing that everything you say can be used against you and probably will be, knowing, you know, how what the PAP government thinks of me. Um, and I came out of there completely exhausted and um it took me a while uh, quite a while to recover from that trauma and so if if for me three and a half years uh, sorry three and a half hours sorry i i i already felt so completely wrung dry by that experience which wasn't even that bad of an experience compared to everything that I've heard you know what mr Nagendran went through I can't imagine what he must have gone through and how it must have destroyed him
1: you know because I completely agree. you know when i was interrogated by the police uh, first for 3 hours and then for 6 hours i ended up agreeing to things because i was so exhausted things mm-hmm. that i that i initially didn't agree to things that they put in my statement and that i you know because i was i was just over it i was like you know what okay fine i'll mm-hmm. sign to that or you can put it that way if if you insist right and and what to imagine and we've also heard in you know from justin's testimony the child who died by suicide after cnb's interrogation from what he and his mother say cnb do use even more aggressive techniques um and he said that he was uh he you know that, that they used vulgarities and were very intimidating to him so if, if that is the case and again experienced that sort of interrogation um, then it is no surprise that he his later statements might contradict his earlier statements
0: and the fact is, he didn't have a lawyer pr- present. He was alone in there, you know. I, and this is part of our whole criminal legal system that I don't understand. No lawyer, no um, access to legal counsel. That surely must be a violation of, um, you know, your right to a fair trial. But let, let's let's um, come to, I mean, the death penalty in general, because I also see in the comments there's some discussion about it, and. Let's start with a very broad question here about why is our government so ideologically wedded to the death penalty? To to something that's so intrinsically inhumane in the face of all the evidence that it, you know, or or a complete lack of evidence that it actually is a deterrent. And when two-thirds of the world have already uh you know um gotten rid of it, right, we're in a shrinking minority. And yet we are one of the most active, if not the most active in, I think it was in the around 2008, 2010, we had per capita, the most executions in the world. What what is, why are we so ideologically wedded to this?
1: I mean, I find that a really difficult question to answer because I, I also think it's important to separate we from the state. We are not ideologically wedded to it. The people are not, I mean, they're, they're, I'm sure there are segments of the population who are, but many people are not, and I think we need to hold on to that. Many people uh, also only believe in and support the death penalty when they have um, poor information about it. I think that's also really important, given how um, much the state controls the narrative around drugs here, uh, how completely free of evidence drug education in schools is, um, how, like, they're just not at all keeping up with the science, the research, the evidence on any of, any of what, how to understand drugs as, in terms of both the trade as well as its uh, different drugs' effects on human consciousness and, and all of those things, right? So um, I think, you know, it, we, we do have to separate what the state is wedded to and why people um, either buy into or don't uh, to some of these narratives.
0: Okay, so in, in sorry, was someone going to say something? Uh, no. Okay, so in this case, right, the um, the the PAP government says that the death penalty deters drug smuggling or drug abuse, and the problem is that that is it's um, anything that involves the death penalty cannot be proven one way or another because you cannot run an experiment where you bring someone back to life don't have the death penalty and then um, see how they behave right so this for me any assertion that the evidence says XYZ um, I'm very skeptical you know it, it's simply impossible to prove um, but what I'm I guess um, wondering about is, Why is it specifically drug trafficking that we treat so harshly and not other things of a similar class like alcohol uh, addiction, alcohol abuse, gambling addiction? Actually, we encourage gambling in Singapore because we have casinos um, which are far more prevalent and actually far worse in their social Mm -hmm. impact. Is there any sort of reason why it's drug smuggling which is treated and drug abuse and the misuse of drugs which is treated wildly out of proportion to its actual impact compared to these other things?
2: I think it's
3: purely a money thing because
2: alcohol and gambling um, they can make money off of it with taxes and all that but you know, how do you make money off drugs when it's all coming in illegally? <laughs> so I think that's one of the things because they can't control it and they can't we can be taxing it for taxing it, you know. So that's how we deal with it. I mean alcohol and gambling. Everyone wants it, everyone pays
0: for it. So Right. That's a, that's actually a really good answer. And and it makes total sense given the publicly stated ideology of the PAP. So another question then for the, the two of your anti-death penalty activists, why is it we don't see the people behind the drug mules? It's, the headlines are always about, you know, these poor, vulnerable people who are exploited as drug mules and end up hanging. And, you know, as I've, I've been saying all day, the worst, the, the biggest supporter of uh, the production and smuggling of drugs is the PAP government because through its support and sponsorship of the Myanmar junta and their production in the Golden Triangle, uh, you know? So we have a situation here where it's very clear that it's it's the poor and vulnerable who are being exploited, but we don't even have, um, you know, for example when you catch a drug mule, surely you're going to ask him, hey, who are you going to deliver these drugs to? Don't they answer that? And then don't you then go and catch that person? And why isn't that person? Why do we never hear about that person being caught and prosecuted? Or do the police simply not ask the drug mules, who are you going to deliver the drugs to? I don't
2: think it matters to them who they sell it to. They just want to catch the people who are selling it and then they they will try and find out who they get it from, the, the one above them. But these news are not going to tell because when they go into this, they most probably would have already kind of deal like, okay, if you get caught, this is what's going to happen. So if they, they do it to earn that extra income. And then they're given this security that, you know, if anything happens, we will take care of your family, which never really happens. Like, you no know, one's has care here, really. So, you know, so I don't think they care who you sell it to because they, they're not interested in catching who they sell it to. They're interested in catching who they're buying from.
0: Wait, so the drug mules actually purchase the drugs or it's a sort of consignment sort of arrangement yeah. i uh, my assumption was they were a courier to someone yeah they don't
2: purchase it they're just a courier that's true but i mean if they they get the job done then of course they get money right
0: so but we, we, who pays them, pays them. It is sorry i um i'm just trying to understand the the, the the process here so someone gives them the drugs to bring into singapore and then in Singapore, what do they do with the drugs?
2: So then they are told who to, to send the drugs to. So they just they just the courier. Okay. Yeah.
0: So
1: so, so there's
2: so from guess, my, um, Yeah, Mila, go ahead. It's just like like how the recent Lalamu thing is. You just get someone to send it for you. So that the drug news are the Lala, Lala kind of right. thing, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that's the analogy of it.
1: I mean, I think firstly, we we know that our laws are created to protect rich people and uh, not the rest of us. And we also know um, anecdotally and, and, you know, from what people we've interviewed who've been incarcerated for drugs tell us that uh, a lot of drug raids are focused on what's called like street level drugs and focused on um, low income neighbourhoods and um and these are and, and street level is is just where uh, often people who are from more marginalized backgrounds can be are more visible using drugs right so there's not you know we also know that there that there is a lot of drug use uh again anecdotally in um international schools for example or in clubs in the partying music in the music scene but these are not places that experience as heavy policing and raids for example in my in my understanding, um, and um, I think also it's it's not as simple PJ. I think as like there are people up there and then there are people down here. It's just like two levels, right? So so there's usually from from what I've um, heard from people who have been involved in the drug trade here. Um, you, they say that you know a lot of the money is is controlled by people um, who are you know at the top of who, who run secret societies and often they are from privileged backgrounds and um, and then it's really a lot of layers of people through which the business is run um, and the people right at the at the bottom of that hierarchy who are who are doing the runs are, are the most marginalized right and then there's people who manage a few people or an area. And then it's it's a lot of layers. It's not just like if this guy is selling it to one guy that he's somehow higher uh, ranking or something than him. It's usually traded across the same level. So there's lots of layers of so as to protect people um, right at the top of the ring, right? And and of these secret societies.
0: So, Koki, I think you, you've also talked about other ways, alternatives to the death penalty as a way to tackle drug abuse in Singapore. Uh, what what other ways can we deal with this if we're not going to have the death penalty as a as a the deterrent?
1: Well, I well, I'm I'm an abolitionist, so I know that that is a pretty. Um, Difficult position for a lot of people to sum up. So I'm an abolitionist in the sense that I, 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 I believe that we need to move away from prisons and policing altogether, and not just the death penalty. Uh, I do not think that life imprisonment is a acceptable alternative to the death penalty, um, and definitely in the case of drug offences, um, many places in, in in a growing number of places are experimenting with and have had very encouraging um, results with harm reduction approaches that are focused on um, well what it sounds like right reducing harm so and that includes a wide variety of things from allowing people to use safely allowing people access to to community support and um, the kinds of treatment that they might want or choose um, allowing people and, and and I think it's very widely recognized that um, it is often when people experience addiction of any kind not just a ad- ad- addiction to to these particular substances, but any form of addiction, that it is a lot of um, community support and and opportunities and resources for healing that allows them to um, overcome addiction if they choose to and if they want to, but also to not um, also be very fixated on, so to speak, recovery, um, but rather recognize that there is a spectrum of users uh, and some of them experience have a healthy relationship with drugs and some people have unhealthy relationships with drugs. And the question is how to protect the most vulnerable people, for example, young children or family members uh, who might be affected by somebody's addiction um, or or unhealthy drug use. Um, and also how to protect people them, themselves, right? In ways that are that that they consent to, like providing access to housing, providing access to health care uh, and uh, yeah and, and and approaches like that that really understand um, what what addiction what lies at the heart of addiction um, but also you know i think drug use is a, is 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 a very closely related but somewhat also separate thing from drug trading right and so people who are couriers who who agree to sell um, in exchange for very little cash, like in, in Nagin's case, he wasn't offered much at all. Uh, and you know, and people online are talking about how you know if somebody was offered two hundred thousand dollars to do this, then they, they should be held culpable. That's nowhere close to. I think Nagain was offered something like five hundred ringgit to do this, um, if I remember correctly. So often people who who know the the serious consequences of of helping to transport drugs but still do do it because they're desperate. Um, and sometimes people don't know, right? Because again, of altered states, uh, different experiencing the world differently, and also because they are coerced. I mean, internationally, and I think New Narrative did a story somewhat related to this, but it's it's there's a lot of uh, very solid research showing that women are often coerced by partners and other men in their lives to transport drugs um, and especially women who are experiencing domestic violence. So it's really many different vulnerable populations that are very severely um, punished and affected by um, completely, you know, an uh, un- indefensible, harsh drug laws that are not based in any science, any evidence whatsoever.
0: Thank you. Um, and. Emmy, for mental health and disability, how would you say, how would you characterize um, the state's, PAP government's approach to it and how can we improve it, especially, um, you know, to to prevent um, more uh, Mr. Nagendran's happening in the future? I, I, very big question, I know. But, um, you've got a lot of experience in this, so yeah.
3: Well, I, I mean, so one thing that is also an issue is um, that has been of um, people of psychosocial disabilities has been arguing is that people should not be put in psychiatric institutions as an alternative to prison because they can also be really harmful places. But also, um, what I've been thinking a lot about because I keep like seeing people talk about this as if it's a black and white thing. And I mean, the issue is, you know, whether or not he has, you know, mental responsibility, that's not the issue. You know, for, for me, I, it's like, it's like making him like, he's the problem, but you know, the, the problem is that the state provide, it's not a, you know, it's individualizing the problem, but also, I keep on, you know, like, there's all this discourse about, like, erasing stigma, and then all those people always say, we don't understand this issue, we need more understanding, and then suddenly when it comes to Nagandran's case, it's like, people suddenly, like, understand it because of something that some, you know, like, they talk about it as if they know about it, but as someone who has, like, experienced psychiatry, I know that it's not true, and it's very suffocating for, I mean, I shouldn't have used that word, but it's really, like, stifling, for me to read all this, it's. I also feel like yeah. I, I just feel, mm. so I think that people should like not you know be cons you know they should they should actually say do what they say, you know they believe they say we need more understanding but now here we are, we are rushing to execute Nagendra and so that doesn't seem, yeah. Uh,
0: thank you, Emmy. And and on that note, actually, understanding it. My impression is that this campaign seems to be getting more traction and more solidarity than previous campaigns for people um, on death row to be to be pardoned or have their sentences commuted. Um, is that a reflection uh, of a greater uh, understanding of the death penalty issue and and a, a change in public views, or is it purely because, um, you know, Mr. Nagendran has the whole. Um, there's the whole uh, intellectual disability angle that that people are latching onto. Question for any of you: um, What's 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 your sense of the future of the anti-death penalty campaign? I guess in Singapore is, is you know where where am uh, what I'm asking. Is this a one-off, or are we actually seeing change?
3: Um, maybe I can speak a bit to that. So. Okay, so in Nagendran's case, one of the 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 CRPD community has explicitly said in various concluding observations, countries um, that the death penalty should not be used on people with psychosocial and intellectual disabilities because that's... is it still working.
0: Oh yes, you're back.
3: Okay, um, yeah, the CRPD committee has repeatedly said um, in comments to states that you know when it reviews states that. The death penalty should not be used on people with psychosocial intellectual disabilities because there's so little understanding, and there's so much subjectivity to the point that it's arbitrary. Um, and so they have asked this.
0: Um. Okay. We might have lost Emmy there. I'm um, back. Oh, you're back. Okay. Great. Oh
3: yeah. So um, to halt um all use of the death penalty but because we know this i mean it's not just that it's arbitrary for people with disabilities i mean disability studies talks about how you know the world the world of you know disabled people have much to teach the world about better ways of living you know we know that the death penalty the way that drug um, trials are done are very arbitrary there's a presumption of guilt and so, you know, we highlight that there's arbitrariness here, but then maybe it's a way for people to understand that there's arbitrariness in all cases of um, drug trials and, you know, death penalty. And and because of this arbitrariness, the death penalty should not apply. You know, it's a final sentence. And it, it, things should be proven before beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, firstly, I should say that I also have, I do think that executions, no one should be executed. But even if someone doesn't believe that all oh, executions should be stopped, I hope that people can at least understand this. Yeah.
0: I, I think you've got a very powerful point there as well about the broader structures that, that govern our society and that there's an expectation that we live in a world where everything can somehow be accurately and objectively measured. Um, and part of that, of course, is the problems with neoliberal capitalism, which is obsessed with measuring outcomes in order to assign value to them. But it's also, I suppose, uh, we've reached a point in this world where um, we actually have uh, uh, the, the the pervasiveness of um, the our um, scientific progress and our ability to measure certain things and understand them is misleading us to think that um, we are able to comprehensively measure anything objectively, and I think that's a very dangerous thing for us as humans to realize to think, because that's what has led us to govern our lives uh, in these very inhum in you know dehumanizing mechanistic ways, right, where we we govern ourselves through incentive structures, um, where engineers. Are the people trying to create social policy? Or, you know, we, we turn to engineers to to look at social policy rather than people who actually um have done a lot of research and trained in trying to understand how people think. Um so uh add to. yes, please. If I
1: can just sort of add to, you know, Amy's response to that question. I think that uh we saw with Saeed Suhail's campaign, Mila's, sister, Mila's brother's campaign, that there was unprecedented support that time around when uh, Saeed's letter was published online by uh, lawyer M. Ravi. Uh, I think there was, a, there was a, a kind of outpouring of support and solidarity that we hadn't seen prior to that. And now with Nagin's case, we're seeing support that is again unprecedented, right? And I think that the definitely it has got, uh, in Nagain's case, a little bit to do with how particularly vulnerable he is, and I think for, for some people it has shattered this image of drug traffickers as you know dangerous, um, scary criminals, uh, and 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 kind of revealed how. Um, regular and also vulnerable people in these circumstances can be. Uh, and I think that there has been growing consciousness around this and I think there, there are other cases that have contributed to this, like Liani's case in seeing how um, the criminal punishment system treats people of different classes and of different vulnerabilities. And I think that that has contributed definitely to people uh, feeling stronger, m- more strongly that the death penalty should be abolished. And I think on, on that note, it's also important, and I, and I saw somebody in the comments also bring this up, that that uh, to, to talk about Nagin as a person, right? And and I know that a lot of the attention has been on how he is someone with a disability, but it's also that he is someone, and, and actually, more importantly, that he is someone, and and which is why I think in, in my sort of trying to like comment on on the case and, and write about it, I've tried to focus on his relationships with his family, what what their memories of him are, um, and who he is as a person, because it's he's not just the person with an IQ of only 69. You know, like that's not I think that that sometimes gets emphasized to the exclusion of everything else, and. Um, yeah, so so Nagin really was somebody that that went to work uh, as a teenager, as a very young person to support his family. He's somebody that um, his family says was extremely affectionate, was always surrounded by friends. Um, he's somebody that that they deeply love and will dearly miss.
0: Thank you, thank you for that. Um, so. As, as of this afternoon, I haven't checked, about 62,000 people have signed a petition for his pardon. We know that there's a hearing tomorrow. Um, what can people do, um, apart from signing the petition, to help save Mr Nagendran?
1: Um So we've also just submitted a letter this morning that Mila delivered to um, President Halima Yaqub with 237 loved ones of... Um, people on death row who've signed it and this is also extremely unprecedented because families of um, people on death row are often uh, extremely reluctant to speak up because of the you know very harsh um, public response uh, to people who are um, convicted for, for drug trafficking offenses so you know we're really encouraged by that too and also um, if people want to speak up on it, there, there's different things they can do, like writing to their, you know, MPs and ministers as usual. Um and i think more gen- i mean there's very little time to do this but wherever possible to speak up as collectives uh, we haven't heard from you know collectives of social workers you can speak up as collectives of teachers just collectives of students you know it's important to make um, our voices heard both as individuals and as part of collectives and, and communities uh, that care about these issues and um uh, yeah so i think it's 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 what we can do at this stage is really whatever uh, people f- have have the wherewithal too, right? So you it can be putting out statements, writing and speaking up, talking to people around you, getting as many people as possible to sign the statement because that is the, while there are many different efforts, that's the one sort of concentrated space that I think is a sort of way that people take the temperature on how many people care about this
0: issue. That's that's very true. I think we have an idea that a lot of um, politicians, MPs in Singapore don't listen, but they do and they are... Uh, ultimately elected politicians who will respond to public pressure. So I want to echo that thought um, and urge Singaporeans to remember you do have a lot more power than you think you do. You can write in, write into the president, write into your MP and get your friends and family together, write in together, um, form collectives, as Kokila said, and together you are a lot more stronger than you are alone. So, please, everyone, if you can take the time. Um, I think we're going to, we've posted the link to your MP and to the president. Please just write an email. That's all, you know, you can take five minutes to write an email that might help save a man's life. Um, and please do make your voice heard. Uh, so, we have um, the um, appeal tomorrow. And um, pending that result, um do we think there's any chance that he will be given a second chance here? I mean from the, the Court of Appeal tomorrow?
1: I think as death penalty activists, um the the work is to is to believe that there is a chance until there is not a chance. Um and, and I think that is not naivety, and it's not optimism, and I, th- I think it is It is a form of discipline. Uh, it is a form of discipline to, to do everything we can till we can. Um, and so, you know, it, it, people have been granted clemency in Singapore before. Um, death, penal- death sentences have been commuted to life sentence after legal battles before, so there is really no telling what can happen. Um, this, the circumstances are extremely precarious and discouraging on many levels. But um, for as long as Nagin is alive, there is hope.
0: Yes, as my coach used to say, you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. So I urge all of you, you know if it turns out that one more email could have saved his life, please make, make it your email. So on that note, we're out of time. And I want to thank our guests. Kokila, Emmy, and Mila for joining us today, and um, I want to thank all of you in the audience for joining us, and everyone in the comments for leaving your comments and discussion. Um, and as always, if you've enjoyed this and found this useful, please do join New Narrative as a member at newnarrative.com/join or support New Narrative at newnarrative.com/donate. We need your help to survive and continue to bring you this this content. So thank you very much, everyone. Um, have a good night and let's try and save the Gendron together. Thank you. Bye bye.